The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. The government computes its guidelines, and the probation department also computes the guidelines. But then the the court goes through it, and very often the court will compute the guidelines a little differently than the government or the probation department. That's very common, and that happened here. So in some cases, he had the same guidelines as the government, like in Rhodes' case, but in some cases, they were substantially lower. Even when you look at the court's guidelines, all of his sentences were below the guidelines. They range from two years below the guidelines to seven years below the guidelines. So the government was uh, disappointed, obviously. So Rhodes got, ended up getting 18 years instead of 25 years. Kelly Meggs got 12 years instead of 21 years. Jessica Watkins got eight and a half years instead of 18 years. Uh, Harrelson got four years instead of 15 years. I'm Gia Kokosakis, intern at Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, July 24th, 2023. On July 12th, the Justice Department appealed the sentences of seven Oath Keepers convicted for January 6th related crimes. Five have been convicted of seditious conspiracy, and two others were convicted of conspiring to obstruct Congress. I sat down with Roger Parloff, senior editor at Lawfare. Roger is a former lawyer and expert on the January 6th Oath Keepers prosecutions who directly observed the proceedings. We discussed who the defendants are, how their sentences were calculated, and the Justice Department's strategic motivations for filing the appeals. It's the Lawfare Podcast, July 24th. The Justice Department appeals Oath Keepers sentences. So... So far, eight Oath Keepers have been sentenced in connection with crimes they committed at the January 6th Capitol attack. On July 12th, the Department of Justice gave notice of their intent to appeal their sentences, seeking longer terms. So before we get to the charges and the appeals, let's start from the beginning. Roger, can you talk about who these Oath Keepers are exactly? Sure. For most readers, the Oath Keepers are sort of an emblem of the January 6th event. About at least 26 Oath Keepers were charged as conspirators for what they did that day. And a number of them went up the East Capitol steps in military uniform and uh, entered the Capitol that way. And that was a, a sort of a 
became an emblem of the event. You know, all of these people in military uniform literally storming the Capitol. There were actually two lines of Oath Keepers that eventually entered. The government called them stacks, stack formations. And then outside of the Capitol was the leader of the Oath Keepers, the founder of the Oath Keepers, and that was um, Elmer Stewart Rhodes III. At least 26 have been charged, and nine of them were charged with seditious conspiracy. Um, Additionally, three others pled guilty to seditious conspiracy, and four others pled guilty to a lesser conspiracy. At this point, 23 have been convicted of something. 22 have been convicted of felonies. So the first uh, nine went to trial, the ones charged with seditious conspiracy, and uh, in two different trials, simply because uh, there wasn't a courtroom big enough for all nine at once. And all nine were convicted, and eight have now been sentenced. One had particular issues that were sort of unique to him. Um, so he hasn't been sentenced yet. And for these eight, six were convicted of seditious conspiracy, and all of the others were convicted of at least one of two other conspiracies. Um, conspiracy to corruptly obstruct a, an official proceeding, and another conspiracy that uh, is called um, uh, using uh, conspiracy to use force intimidation or threats to prevent officers of the United States from discharging their duties. So those were the key charges. And the five, I, I, I saw the entire first trial. So I'm most familiar with the cases of the five that were in that first group, uh, which included uh, Stuart Rhodes, who's, as I mentioned, the founder and the leader, Kelly Meggs, who was the leader of the Florida group, and he led the 13 people into the Capitol. That was stack one. Um, there's a woman named Jessica Watkins who was uh, went in with the uh, Megs group. Uh, and she was actually, in a way, uh, involved in some of the worst violence. She, Once she got in there, she attempted to force her way and help lead others to force their way, to push their way down the corridor heading toward the entrance of the Senate. And they uh, encountered riot police, and there was quite a melee. There's another one, Ken Harrelson, who was actually, we heard about relatively little. He joined the conspiracy late. He didn't use social media, so less was known about him. And then uh, Thomas Caldwell, who was the one who was not convicted of any conspiracy, and he's the one that hasn't been sentenced yet. Okay, great. So now that we know more about who these individuals are and their activities on January 6th, and then before we get to their sentences, what goes into determining a sentence? Sentences in federal criminal cases are governed by sentencing guidelines, but how strictly do these guidelines have to apply? What do they entail? Yeah, these guidelines were enacted in 1984, and they were put into effect in late 1987. And they were intended to be mandatory, uh, although, you know, uh, describing human behavior with 
a matrix is always difficult. So there was always wiggle room. But then in 2005, the Supreme Court said that it was really unconstitutional to to have them be mandatory. So they are they are advisory. Nevertheless, the judges do go through the process. There's a manual that describes the things you need to take into account. And basically, what it all leads up to is uh, a sort of a table. And the x-axis of that table, if, if tables can have x-axes, I'm not sure, is offense severity. How, how severe was your crime? And the y-axis is your prior criminal history, if any. And then, so you, you determine, you get a numerical figure eventually for your offense severity, and you get a numerical figure, one of six categories for your prior criminal history. And then you, you know, you look up in the table and, and you will get a, a set of guidelines, usually, you know, maybe a 12, uh, 15 months range. And, uh, you'll, that's the recommended guidelines. But ever since uh, Booker, um, the which was the Supreme Court ruling in 2005, which said that they're advisory, uh, obviously judges have more leeway than they even had in the beginning. Nevertheless, um, in the District of Columbia, people get uh, ordinarily they they uh, stay within either within their guidelines or departures that are sort of authorized in the sentencing manual 70% of the time. That's that's the broad brush. Here, most January 6th defendants, and in fact, I think all of the Oath Keepers that have been sentenced so far, had effectively no prior criminal record. What were some key considerations that went into deciding the sentences for these individuals, especially now knowing that they didn't have really much of any pre-existing criminal records that would factor into looking at those sentencing guidelines. So we're looking then mainly at what they were actually doing leading up to and on January 6th, correct? That's right. And so the the top crime that six of the eight are convicted of is seditious conspiracy. Now, each offense, you you try to look up what category of offense it falls into. And that, that's sort of the, you get a baseline number for its offense severity, severity that gets adjusted from there. So for instance, obstruction of justice is 14 points. And then, and then there would be adjustments depending on, you know, are you a leader of the whole thing? Are you a, 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 a small, a small fry? Did you plead guilty? You would get a reduction for a guilty plea of usually three points and, and factors like that. The baseline here for seditious conspiracy, there is no, uh, that's a rare crime and there is no specified offense severity. So when that happens, you're supposed to look for the most analogous offense. And in the past, the most analogous offense for seditious conspiracy has been treason. Now, treason has an offense baseline offense severity of 43. So, I mean, at 43, 
even if you have no priors, your guidelines are life imprisonment. But the sentencing guideline for seditious conspiracy also says that this is only to apply if what the defendant did is, quote, tantamount to waging war against the United States. And a lot of seditious conspiracy prosecutions until now have involved just that, you know, uh, like going to Afghanistan or plan uh, conspiring to, to fight against the United States with jihadists. Or you'll have something like the World Trade Center bombing of 1993. That was uh, tantamount to waging war against the United States. And in those cases, the defendants were charged. Seditious conspiracy has several different clauses. And one of those clauses is levying war against the United States. These defendants, although they were charged with seditious conspiracy, weren't charged under that clause. They were charged under one that said using uh, force, by force, preventing, hindering, or delaying the execution of any U.S. law. And another that's actually pretty close to levying war, which is opposing by force the authority of the United States. But the government felt that they were not going to attempt to say that this was tantamount to waging war against the United States. So they ended up not using treason as the analogous offense. And after that, when you look for the next most analogous offense, they decided that it was obstruction of justice because the second type of conspiracy was corrupt obstruction of an official proceeding, which falls under the obstruction of justice statute. So they, the place this all begins is at 14 instead of 43. The numbers still get pretty high because of things like planning and was anybody hurt? And, and for people like the leaders, like um, uh, Rhodes and Megs, there, there are enhancements. So that's, that's how the computation began. You mentioned different enhancements that can factor into coming up with this number that is then used to determine a defendant's sentence. So something that is coming up more frequently in the conversation about these defendants for January 6th about these Oath Keepers is whether or not there should be a terrorism enhancement. What does this mean and what role did it play in sentencing and what role maybe should it have played in sentencing if it didn't play one to begin with? There, the sentencing guidelines do have an enhancement, an explicit enhancement for terror and terrorism. And it's actually, you might think of it as two different types. The first is if you promote a federal crime of terrorism that is defined by a particular statute. And that statute lays out a number of different types of offense, like providing material support to a terrorist group or airline piracy. And usually it has to do with international terrorism. Then there is a footnote that suggests that you can also use a terrorism enhancement elsewhere if the offense, quote, was calculated to influence or affect the conduct of government by intimidation or coercion, or to retaliate against government conduct. 
So the the terrorism enhancement that's governed by statute, um, the one that if, you know we usually usually applies with international terrorism, that is an automatic twelve point enhancement of your offense severity, and that gets you up near that forty three number again, where I, I was talking about with treason. The footnote four doesn't specify um, exactly what the penalty would be. And what the government argued here, they wanted terror enhancements for all eight of these defendants, nine really, because they wanted Caldwell too, even though he was acquitted of all the conspiracies. But uh, they felt that it could be a number less than 12. So for Rhodes, who was the leader, they recommended a six-point enhancement, and Judge Maida agreed with that. Uh, his role was super, super crucial. He organized the whole thing. He brought nearly 30 people to the Capitol and, and so on. Kelly Meggs, uh, who le- led the column of 13 people into the Capitol, they wanted uh, a four-point enhancement. I think Judge Maida ultimately decided a three-point enhancement. But he did give each of the defendants I believe all eight, um, some form of terror enhancement, although uh, for some of the lesser defendants, it was only a single point. But he did acknowledge uh, a terror aspect. And just as an aside, when I described the event, you know, I mentioned walking up the East Capitol steps and into the into the Capitol. I, I, I probably should have mentioned as well, because it's very, very important in how everyone looks at this case, is that Rhodes also had all of these people, nearly all of these people, uh, contributed to an arsenal that was kept at the Comfort Inn in, uh, mo- well, several hotels around uh, Washington, mostly at a Comfort Inn in Boston, Virginia, that's in Arlington, just across the Potomac, so maybe 15, 20 minutes uh, from the Capitol. And the, the theory was that, uh, you know, that they might, if Rhodes gave the order, many, many AR-15s and thousands of rounds of of ammunition were available, ready to be brought in. There were also some at a Hilton Garden Inn. So that's why every uh, the government considers this a very, very serious case. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. I want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com lawfare20. 
and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I was going to say that's really interesting and important to know because one of the debates that has surrounded January 6th from when it happened and honestly still stretches to today is whether or not we would consider it an act of domestic terrorism. And so somewhat adjacent to that in a way, this terrorism enhancement, I think that when some people originally connect the idea of a terrorism enhancement to January 6th and what they saw happening at the Capitol, as you've kind of illustrated, that doesn't truly tell the entire story. You know, when the when the judge and the prosecution were taking into account these plans that they had when they were stashing weapons and creating this arsenal that could be called in at any moment, it shows that they're really considering not just what happened at the Capitol, but what could have happened as well. And that's really where this terrorism enhancement comes from. So that does clear up a lot of debate and also some misconception that I hear around January 6th and the cases of these Oath Keepers quite frequently. So now that we know what these defendants have been charged with, we have a little bit more understanding of what went into determining their sentences. What is this gap between what the Justice Department had recommended for the individual sentences and what they actually received? And why would this be such a big deal for the Justice Department? Well, they were pretty dramatic gaps. And I'm going to say that having sat through the trial, at least of five of them, I thought that personally that Judge Maida made some reasonable decisions. But I will tell you what the gaps are. Well, first, just sort of broad brush. If you look at the departures from what the government sought and what he imposed, they ranged from the actual sentences range from seven years less than the government sought to 17 years less than the government sought. So, you know, Rhodes got 18 years, which is a very substantial sentence. It's the longest sentence any January 6th defendant has received, but they wanted 25. And then, so all of the others received even less. Uh, Like, for instance, a guy named Ed Vallejo, they wanted 17 years. He was given three years. Now, also, if you look at the guidelines, and of course, the government computes its guidelines, and the probation department also computes the guidelines. But then the, the court goes through it, and very often the court will compute the guidelines a little differently than the government or the probation department. That's very common. And that happened here. So in some cases, he had the same guidelines as the government, like in Rhodes' case. But in some cases, they were substantially lower. Even when you look at the court's guidelines, all of his sentences were below the guidelines. They range from two years below the guidelines to seven years below the guidelines. So I think 
uh, the government was uh, disappointed, obviously. So Rhodes got ended up getting 18 years instead of 25 years. Kelly Meggs got 12 years instead of 21 years. Jessica Watkins got eight and a half years instead of 18 years. Uh, Harrelson got four years instead of 15 years. And Caldwell hasn't been sentenced yet. Those are the ones that uh, I'm going to talk about because I feel most comfortable I was there. And so you can see why they're upset. But at the same time, you know, sentencing is always individual and there are ambiguities. I'll take, take a look at Caldwell, for instance. Tom Caldwell was in that comfort inn or he helped organize that arsenal. He did come to the Capitol, but uh, he didn't go in and he didn't, he wasn't involved in any violence. And then the, the jury acquitted him of conspiracy. So it's sort of like, well, what did he do exactly? He was, he was on the grounds of the Capitol in restricted area, but ordinarily people doing that who didn't go in and weren't involved in violence weren't charged at all. And if they were charged, they were charged with a, a misdemeanor, class A misdemeanor. And for Caldwell, the government wanted 14 years, even though he was acquitted of the conspiracies. And it is true, it's sort of uh, that the D.C. Circuit law and, and actually the law in most circuits is that you can be sentenced for conduct that you've been acquitted of on the theory that, you know, if the judge thinks by a preponderance of the evidence, you really did it. And he was convicted of, of two other felonies that would permit a sentence of that length. So anyway, you need to look at, at the specifics. Harrelson, like I said, um, we really learned very little about him. He joined very late. And if you join something very late, it means you might not have even heard the many crazy things that uh, seditious things that Rhodes had been saying all along. He, he wasn't in these encrypted chat sessions where uh, all of the seditious rhetoric was taking place. So you weren't sure what his sentiments were, how much he, he knew. Uh, and he wasn't on social media bragging and making menacing comments. Uh, so I think the judge was very concerned about overcharging. And the truth is that if you've seen a lot of these cases, and Judge Maida has, what these guys did, save, say, Watkins, was relatively minor compared to, you know, in, in, in terms of if you took a snapshot, what did they do in the Capitol? They didn't attack police for the most part. They went in, they came out, they weren't there that long. The truth is that unlike the Proud Boys, they didn't play in a, a crucial role in the breach either. Um, they didn't breach anything. They waited until other rioters had breached it, and then they decided to go in. So uh, there was a way of looking at this where they weren't necessarily the worst actors. Uh, Maida obviously felt Rhodes... Uh, deserved was was an extraordinary actor. He really wasn't sure about 
the culpability of some of these minor characters. And then, of course, Jessica Watkins had her own very unusual story, a very hard story. She's a um, transgender female, and uh, she had been in the army before she switched, and uh, but she was having these thoughts about uh, who she was, and uh, a uh, another person uh, in the army looked at her computer and saw where she had been looking at the internet sites, and confronted her and uh, called her a vile name and threatened her, and she went a wall. These are very reason, you know. There was very good reason to take these threats seriously. She was discharged dishonorably from from the army that she loved. And then she couldn't really fit in anywhere else. She reached out to the trans community and, and she found them touchy feely and she didn't feel she fit in. And it was just a very strange story. Her parents were religious. They, they disavowed her a, a, a very painful, difficult thing. And, uh, and of course it's also very difficult for her to be in prisons uh, she's subject to a lot of uh, harassment. So there are particularized factors for each of these defendants. And uh, honestly, I, 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 I thought Maida's outcomes made sense. I was going to ask, as somebody who has witnessed these trials, you really were not surprised by the sentences that were doled out to these individuals. If you had been the judge, would there have been Anything in particular that you can think of that you would have changed? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, that, sentencing is such a horrible responsibility. I think there have now been, let's see, 700 people, more than 700 have been convicted. I think uh, more than 500 have been sentenced. And uh, these sentences, even though they were lower than the government wanted, I guess 560 have been sentenced. Rhodes is still the the longest sentence of anyone. Kelly Meggs is the fourth longest. Jessica Watkins is the sixth longest. And when you've seen some of the other cases where people really beat officers, sprayed them, caused them career-ending uh, injuries, some of whom had long previous records, like Peter Schwartz uh, had 38 prior convictions. There, there were more serious cases. Some people had loaded guns on them, you know, at the Capitol, like Guy Guy Reffitt. So, uh, you know, and there, uh, there was uh, Julian Cotter who uh, sprayed Brian Sicknick, who who later died. So, there were factual scenarios that struck you at a gut level as as more severe than anything you saw here, except for the fact that it was a conspiracy and it was plotted uh, for months and there was that arsenal out there and, and there were 30 of them. Uh, so I think Maida was right as far as Rhodes. He's the only one that I would have considered giving more than, than they actually got. I thought his sentences made sense. And maybe I should mention, I should have maybe said it before, 
the government's position is that these aren't really January 6th cases in a sense, because it wasn't like, and, and it's what you were saying a moment ago. It wasn't just what happened on January 6th. You know, this was a crime that began months before. It involved planning. And what the Supreme Court has said about conspiracy, and this is this, the, the government quoted this passage. It was from uh, Callanan versus United States in 1961. Collective criminal agreement, partnership in crime, presents a greater potential threat to the public than individual delicts, meaning crimes. Concerted action both increases the likelihood that the criminal object will be successfully attained and decreases the probability that the individuals involved will depart from the path of criminality. Group association for criminal purposes often, if not normally, makes possible the attainment of ends more complex than those which one criminal could accomplish. Nor is the danger of a conspiratorial group limited to the particular end toward which it has embarked. Combination in crime makes more likely the commission of crimes unrelated to the original purpose for which the group was formed. In sum, the danger which a conspiracy generates is not confined to the substantive offense, which is the immediate aim of the enterprise. So in in a sense, that's the argument that uh, for disregarding what I was saying before, you know, when I, as a, when I look at this case compared to the other cases, it seems like, gee, what these guys did did not really result in injuries to police officers like what the other guys did. But uh, the, the, on the other hand is what I just read. The, the fact that it was a conspiracy, it lasted months there were the arms out there in, in, uh, the, at the Comfort Inn and in the Hilton Garden Inn in Vienna. So that's the tension. But I would have resolved it personally the way Judge Maida is, or I like to think I would have. All right. So now that it seems that the sentences were based on a reasoning that we can understand, why might the Department of Justice be appealing these sentences? Could it be a strategic move on their part? And if so, in what ways? Well, you know, that was my initial reflex. Um, You know, all of these people have appealed. And so I wondered to myself, and I haven't practiced in many, many years, if, you know, it was a way of telling them that appealing wasn't... uh, a risk-free proposition that, and maybe even offering a, a sort of a, if you withdraw your appeal, we'll withdraw our appeal. I ran that past a couple lawyers and both of them, frankly, shot that down. Um, I, uh, one of those was Dan Richman, who's over at Columbia Law School. He's um, a former uh, Southern District prosecutor. He didn't think that was happening. What the prosecutor was telling me, uh, Dan, and and also what a federal public defender uh, also told me is that appeals by the government of sentences are extremely rare, uh, especially since that Booker case in 2005, which said that, you know, uh, the guidelines are just advisory. So uh, they must think that these disparities were uh, so, so large that it begins to draw into question um 
how valuable are the sentencing guidelines anymore. He accepted their arguments about uh, the terror enhancement applying, and yet uh, it had no uh, effect on the actual sentence. He went way under. So it might uh, it might have to do with that. And I should mention also, uh, although it's uh, I'm, I'm jumping around a little, the terror enhancement, the government has only asked for a terror enhancement in, I think, six other cases. And it has ne- it was never granted before the Oath Keepers. It's been granted once since the Oath Keepers. They've been using it sparingly and uh, save, you know, saving it for particularly egregious cases. And then to have it imposed and yet really make no effective difference in the sentences, uh, perhaps that's what th- they want to challenge. That makes sense. And one thing that I had spoken about with a colleague uh, earlier had been the possibility maybe that this appeal was a strategic move on the behalf of the Department of Justice to raise the sentences of these Oath Keepers to use more as a benchmark because going forward, looking at other individual sentences who may have committed somewhat similar crimes in regard to there being an element of prior planning, an element of violence as well, that these individuals couldn't really go any higher in their sentences than what had already been doled out to these eight Oath Keepers. And so in raising the bar for these Oath Keepers' sentences, they would be also possibly raising their ability to sentence other individuals involved in somewhat similar activity They would be able to sentence these individuals for longer. Do you think that that could be a possibility? And if so, why? Sure, I I do think that makes sense. And of course, we have the Proud Boys sentencing coming up in late August. Um, No appeal will be heard uh, before those sentencings occur. But maybe it's that's also in the back of their minds. I thought personally that the the Rhodes sentence and the Meg sentence were very uh, ominous for the Proud Boys because what they did was really much worse. You had the conspiracy. In fairness, bo- uh, you, you have the rhetoric and, and and some planning, but they played a crucial role at four of the earliest breaches. And uh, you know, if you're really a case can really be made that January 6th might not have played out the way it did without the Proud Boys. That's not really true of the Oath Keepers. So the Proud Boys really have a lot on the line, and, and maybe maybe the government wants to make sure that uh, these conspiracies are, are taken seriously and that the terror enhancement is, is enforced. Having said what I just said, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm always on the one hand, on the other hand, but in both of those cases, there was a disconcerting element of spontaneity. Even though there was months of rhetoric and months of overarching rhetoric about let's stop Biden from getting control. There was no, in neither case, 
was there a plan, you know, like, okay, at 12.53, go to the peace circle, and then you're going to topple the, you know, topple the barrier. There was nothing like that. And so each had a spontaneous element that is a bit at war with the way we think of a classic conspiracy. I'm sure that will be an appellate issue. I, and I, I, I think that, you know, again, for, on Meta's behalf, especially with some of these lower, less culpable defendants, that has to be a factor that you, you don't know how much of this was sort of live action role playing and how, how much of this was really a plot to stop the certification. Well, thank you, Roger. It'll be really interesting to see how the courts receive these appeals and where these cases go in the future and what role they may play in the determination of other cases in the future. So thank you again for coming on today and having this talk. Thank you, Gia. I appreciate it. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath. Our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Pacha Howell and your audio engineer this episode was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. <laughs>